Welcome to Small Talk with Raincraft. I'm Subha, a leadership and executive coach. And I'm Hasita. I'm a marketing strategist. We're just two people who love to talk and love to learn. And this is us being curious about the world around us. Join us. Hi, Small Talkers. Today I have a special guest, Jaina Kotari. Jaina is a senior advocate and practices in the Supreme Court of India. She graduated from University Law College and read the BCL at Oxford University. Now, she runs her own private practice and CLPR, Center for Law and Policy Research. I'm looking forward to a conversation with Jaina to talk about the legal profession, senior women in the legal profession and what that looks like, and also to understand how it is when social justice forms a large part of the work that you do. Listen on. Hi, Jaina. Welcome to Small Talk with Raincraft. So happy to have you here. Hi, Subha. Happy to be here. I do listen to your podcast and find it quite useful. So thanks for having me. Great, great. Thank you so much. So before we started, we were just chatting, right, about the whole courts being online and during COVID. How has that experience been? Because in our minds, courts are such a kind of stodgy old place that we can't even imagine it online. Well, I think for a lot of us, we couldn't really imagine courts being online. We never had it, though there was a lot of talk that there should be e-courts and online hearings and all. But uh, COVID really forced that. And then when it did happen, it was amazing because we really, I think, realized that you could have actually pretty good hearings in some cases, better hearings than online. And all the many of the myths that you can't have long cases, you can't have serious constitutional law arguments, you couldn't have multiple lawyers in these large kind of litigations, all that happened online. How will the court, what will we do with our court craft? I mean, you know, that was the big thing of lawyers, right? Our whole existence is based on our flourishing court. And what will happen to all of that? And how will the judges in the lower courts kind of see the witness and get the demeanor of the witness? All of this can't happen online, but actually all of it did. The Supreme Court has been hearing very complex constitutional cases with 20, 30 lawyers. Actually, we've had a lot of old cases being disposed and heard because lawyers now can't say that they're busy or they're right there, right? They have nothing else to do. Our witnesses actually have come to court and court judges have been able to see really the background of the witness, their homes, if they're on a phone, to really see what the party is going through. And actually, in all these ways, online hearing has fared way better than expectations. This is something that we hope courts continue even after COVID. It's amazing how we adapt when we are forced to and uh, something better emerges. That's really nice. And you know what you said about the lawyer's demeanor, body language of the witness. For those of us outside the profession, it's a very glamorous profession, honestly. There is the the Grisham kind of really, really late nights and paperwork and, and that lawyer in the small room who's just chugging at it and trying to figure out some loophole. And then there's the court scenes of all the TV shows that we watch, right? What attracted you to law? I think certainly, I wouldn't say the glamour, but the excitement of litigation, of being a litigating lawyer, 
I didn't see it as glamorous. It's certainly not glamorous, let me tell you that. But there is great excitement in going to court, in litigating, really standing in court before a judge, pleading your client's case. It was that excitement that pulled me to law and the promise that you could bring about change and that you could fight for the rights of people who need it. You could be their voice. And that's what really motivated me. That's a very powerful motivation, right? The impact that you can make through what you do. Kind of to start at the top, like you speak at the Supreme Court. How is that like? Is that, again, for us, it's a very elite space. We imagine it in our minds as extremely, extremely well-versed folks who are speaking to judges of very high caliber and discussing things of utmost importance. Is it very different from lower courts? Yeah, I mean, the Supreme Court is certainly very different from the high courts. I had the privilege to work right in the beginning of my career in the Supreme Court with a senior lawyer. And I wanted to see that when I started my legal profession. And even for practice, it's very different. The Supreme Court certainly is far more exclusive and whatever you may say, elite. I mean, it's it's a court for everyone. But yes, in terms of lawyers, in terms of people who have access to it, it's far more exclusive. As a lawyer, when you first start appearing, it can be very, very daunting because the Supreme Court has its own kind of set of senior counsels and the familiar faces. And when you come from outside the known faces and you're a younger person, it takes that much time for you to plead your case. It's unfamiliar, you're scared, you're nervous, all of that. But I think now that I've appeared there quite frequently that I'm still not a Delhiite. I'm still not based in Delhi, appearing every day in the Supreme Court, but I do appear quite regularly. And so then a little bit of that goes away, that fear and that kind of uncertainty goes away as you get familiar, you, you judges whom you've appeared before, they get a little more familiar with you and so you slowly break the ice. What would be your most cherished case if there was one? Because I know in the kind of social justice space, you have touched a lot of very important areas. What would be your most cherished? I've had a lot of different cases that have been quite big and important for different reasons. But I think possibly one case, I mean, one of many, but one that stands out was the case, uh, the name of the case was Independent Thought versus Union of India. And this was a case where I appeared for an intervener. An intervener is someone who kind of is not a party to the case, but then asked the court to make them a party. And this was a case where there was a challenge to the exception to child marital rape. In our law, now that we have the whole kind of debates on marital rape, going on because in India the criminal law doesn't recognize rape within marriage as rape. So there's an exception of marriage but there was another exception in our criminal code which says that uh, the sexual assault of a, of a bride or a wife who's below 18 so though the age of consent is 18 but if you're 15 to 18 and you're married it is still consensual, so it's not taken as rape. So in a way, it was actually recognizing child marriages, right? Because you're saying that it's okay to have sex with your wife if she's under 18 because she's your wife. So you're not only kind of not recognizing marital rape, but you're also kind of not recognizing child marriage, which is prohibited. So there was a challenge to that. 
and there were arguments in which I represent the child rights group. And finally, the court, the Supreme Court held that this would be unconstitutional. And I think it opens up the argument for recognition of marital rape. It's like a precursor, but it really was a very fulfilling kind of set of arguments because for two days, the judges heard us patiently, heard me patiently, and really kind of have given a judgment where many parts of it are quite progressive. There was one thing made, one argument raised that if you recognize this, it would lead to the breakdown of the institution of marriage. And the court said, what is an institution of marriage? It's what two people make. Does it mean that we preserve it at any cost? And what about the rights of young girls to choice? So in that sense, it was quite important. It led to a great judgment. So, And the second year of my arguments was on my birthday. So I kind of many momentous <laughs> memories with that case. I'm sure something like this, obviously the impact of it stays on the system. And even for you as a person, right? To be able to argue something that you feel so strongly for and so important for the population, for the girl-child population. So is that how it came about that you have a private practice today and you also have a not-for-profit trust? How do you balance that? So I started with a private practice. I mean, I worked earlier as a junior lawyer with different lawyers. And then when I started to have, I wanted to have my own practice, I was always taking up cases pro bono or NGOs or for people referred by NGOs on human rights issues, but they were all non-paying. So I couldn't survive on that. So therefore, I did need a private practice which would be remunerative. And I also wanted to do a wide range of work. So I always started with my private practice and I would do whatever other cases that came my way, even if people were not able to afford legal fees, I would still do them. Because for me, it was like, okay, I just do a few cases which are free. It really doesn't take away too much of my time and I'll do it. And I still had my private practice, which was earning me my bread and butter. So that's really how I started out. It was only much later, around 10 years ago, that when I started getting a lot of other work, I said, we must institutionalize it. And so then my private practice continued. Then we set up an organization called the Center for Law and Policy Research, where one of the areas of work was strategic litigation. Strategic litigation, human rights litigation, which would be pro bono most fit. I think the institutionalizing it of it is important also because you need people with very different mindsets for the two. I'm sure that today we hear a lot of youngsters, and I'm sure even in the legal profession, that the cause is important or what the company stands for is important, What, how the company produces its goods or, or its services is important. So do you find that you're attracting a certain kind of youth today for CLPR different from the private practice? In a way, what are they doing right? Are they coming in with the right mindset? Yes, certainly. I mean, I think the kind of people we attract is very different because someone who applies to just join any practice, any senior lawyer's practice would just want perhaps a wide range of work. Some lawyers have specialties, corporate law, criminal law, whatever. So maybe a little bit of that. But they may or may not have the exposure and the sensitivity to many of these issues. And then it would be like learning from scratch. 
Whereas those who apply to CNPR to work, whether it's research-based or litigation-based work, most of them, of course, we do get fresher applicants, but most of them are people who have always been interested in many of these issues of gender, disability, inequality, that they've worked on, that they've experienced themselves. Many of them go on to do master's courses. Some of them have worked with perhaps other NGOs. So they're already oriented towards some of these issues. And that's why they apply to us. That's why the CLPR becomes attractive to them. Because they're concerned about these issues and they're interested in these issues. Yeah, but we still may have to handhold them because they may not have worked exactly on the particular issues of the center. But at least there is a mindset which is already focused on looking at gender in a certain way. Whereas someone who would just join a regular practice might not even be exposed to many of these issues and conditions. What about a youngster who may walk in saying, this looks interesting, appealing, feels like the right thing to do, but I'm not sure. How do I know if it's for me? Oh, we get a lot of people like that. Of course, they don't tell you that. They'll join, but they're not sure, right? So they join and are figuring it out on the job. And I feel that a lot of young people do go through this. And while the issues may be meaningful to them, you may be very motivated or interested on LGBTQ issues, on disability, on gender, or caste, but working on it is a very different ballgame. So whether you're working in the field of research or policy work or litigation, I think in the media now there is a great buzz. So uh, these are avenues that were perhaps not open to our generation. You know, 20 years ago, if I wanted to join a research organization, on social justice issues, there weren't any organizations. There, no no? there were no opportunities. It's only now in the last 10 years that there are organizations that are able to get support and are able to hire bright young people to do research work, to work on policy, to work on human rights strategic litigation. In our times, there were hardly one or two organizations all over the country. So it is very exciting. It sounds very exciting and sexy to work on these issues. And it is, it's a lot of fun, but when you learn the ropes, it's hard. Anything is hard. So that's when people have to figure out, is this for me? Can I sustain it? Can I do the hours? Can I put in those initial two, three years that it takes before you really get to do the cream work? It takes that much time. And that's what I think young people have to figure out. That it's not just the issue, but it's also the daily work that any learning or any job takes. And I think what you said is interesting that you also have to give yourself that time to figure it out. You can't really rush that process. Yeah. Like you can't say, okay, in two months of a summer stint there, let me figure it out. Yeah, and I would have figured it out in two months. You can't. It'll take you two years to figure it out, you know? A very similar conversation with having at home with my 16-year-old who's extremely interested in public policy and that side of things. And we think about civil service. There's a huge difference between researching public policy and doing the hard work of service. And that's something for her to think about and somewhere experience also and figure it out. But you're right, it takes time. You have to give it the time and uh, you can't rush that which is what I think many try to do across industries that can I get a quick answer to, in a way they want a quick answer to, should I even invest that two years? You will get your answer if you invest the time. And 
itself will give you the answer i think one of the things that you mentioned is about early on working and starting at the supreme court or having that opportunity so i know that you had very strong mentorship early on right can you just tell us a little bit about that and how that impacted your career trajectory so when i started i finished my masters and then i immediately joined a very very well known senior counsel in the supreme court indira jaising she is still one of our top lawyers and i was very lucky to be able to work with her she did all the work that i was so excited to work on she had the big constitutional law cases but she also had a very wide ranging practice in other fields and so i worked with her for close to 2 years and it really gave me a complete kind of exposure to not just the supreme court and issues that i was interested in issues of gender and labor rights etc but really about the law her motto was that you just have to be prepared like crazy you have to be 200% prepared and you have to be on the top of your game so whatever you do you whatever law you do you just have to be you have to be fully prepared and fully on top of it that's the bottom line and that lesson is something that stays with me and i have to thank her for that she would not leave me till i had done all my research and done full prep and she wasn't convinced by an argument she would say like this doesn't make is not convincing go get another argument no shortcuts no shortcuts to the law no shortcuts to the hard work to the reading and another thing she really i think taught me is to really be fearless in court her message would be that you have to just go out there and be unafraid you will have judges put you down if any time you may have other lawyers maybe be aggressive but you can't be afraid you just absolutely can't because then you won't be able to do your job as a lawyer you know and that really kind of stayed with me mm-hmm. and then i came and worked in bangalore with basuprabhu patel also a senior advocate for about a year and a half because i wanted to kind of get started in the karnataka high court and in bangalore and i got really amazing exposure to wide variety of work and i think also and i was in an office which really was bustling with work from a one senior counsel office to a large bustling litigation office and i would just see him handling like 20 cases a day in a calm relaxed manner without getting flustered and that was really quite uh, impressed i'm like you know how does he do that again those are some of the things that i try and do that even today that's what a busy lawyer's life is and i have days of many many matters but there is that you need to have that sense of calmness that yes how do we just go about with a sense of calm but with a sense of getting the work done and so yeah so i feel that those two work stints were extremely useful extremely learning and they've stayed with me till date that's amazing i think you have mentors who really kind of walk the talk right it's when you see them not just telling you that hey you have to be confident but over years you see that they just embody that then it becomes something that you carry away and then those who under you now will definitely carry that and see that and be and yeah that calmness that you mentioned so true right if you need to stand there looking and sounding so sure of what you want to say and not flustered not doubting yourself and 
what uh, next for you like how do you look at how do you grow or how do you learn as a lawyer is supreme court the ultimate then what happens that's an interesting question which i do think many lawyers at a midpoint or some point in their career would think okay now what now i've appeared in the supreme court should i just do more of this how much more and you know and a lawyer's career life really doesn't end if you pop it i mean if you're if you're otherwise hail huh if you're hail and hearty and you know we've had like famous lawyers arguing till their 80s and 90s so yeah i don't know right now i'm at a phase that i'm really enjoying the whole variety of cases that i'm getting i was designated senior advocate a few years ago and that has brought lucky that it has brought with it the opportunity that i can appear in a wider range of cases in the supreme court in other high courts and so all of that and with covid of course appearing in other high courts has become so much easier right with online courts so all that has been extremely challenging and intellectually stimulating so i'm enjoying that for now i'm also doing a lot of writing i try to keep writing whether it's articles or books i've written one book and that was a nearly a decade ago so that is actually keeping me ticking the work on my second book and i so i do hope that it sees the light of day soon that's on its side but i'm still at the early phase of my exciting work so i do see a lot more exciting work in the supreme court hopefully coming my way no you're right i mean as a lawyer there is no like 60 as a number means nothing that it does to those in other sectors and you can just go on as long as your heart is in it and you're able yes. so that's amazing but tell me as a profession does it feel like a very end of the day a very solo endeavor or is there this amazing lawyers of the supreme court club that you can <laughs> kind of pop into once in a while you know it's a bit of both and i don't know if there are other professions like that yes it is a bit of both at the heart of it it's a solo career art especially if you're a counsel if you're an arguing counsel because then it is you has to appear people come to you just to engage you to appear so of course you can have a large office but you needn't so it's really a solo career path and a solo practice so and as your day to day is a little bit of that and a lot of time is spent reading and writing so in that sense it's also a kind of solo endeavor but being in court also has its kind of community with the bar so whether i'm in the karnataka high court where i certainly have my own community of lawyers where you can catch a coffee you can be in the corridor and always hear some gossip and some fun talk and whichever other courts whether in the supreme court or wherever so that and the camaraderie with the bar is something that the legal profession you can go to any bar in the country really and have that in with other lawyers and i think that's the charm of the legal profession really because you're all in there together right and so in that sense that community and the camaraderie is also there it has a bit of both but i think at the heart of it it's a solo endeavor and a lot of the work that you do by itself is so intense right by nature especially on the social justice side that you would need that camaraderie you would need those spaces to in some way unwind a little bit and take your yes. mind off the yeah. heaviness of you need to unwind and get some and it's good to be out there and also sometimes i find it very useful to even bounce off some of these ideas with 
my other lawyer friends who are not doing get a sense from them hey how do you think this will fly because ultimately it's in court and i have to convince the judges so it's good to sometimes get that bouncing off of ideas but i do know that you also unwind with some very deep interest right like running dancing is that really just a way of unwinding or is that something that kind of adds what does it do for you so for me a uh, dance was something that i've done all my life i started learning dance as a child typically started bharatanatyam in school and i never kind of stopped so i did bharatanatyam then i learned kathak and then from the last 12 years i've been learning odyssey so for me dance was always not a way of unwinding i loved dance i still love it and for me it was a way of i never took it up as a profession but it was always a part of my life it's i can't imagine my life without dance and the discipline i think that classical dance brings intensity that classical dance brings because it is about the learning the practice i don't do enough i don't do as much as i should but it's that intensity so i think that's what keeps me drawn it's that intensity i mean it's not like i'm not getting to work i think it's the intensity and the beauty of it of what dance or music can bring uh, to you right but i think learning it and doing it has now become also a way of unwinding in unintentionally because when i'm doing my, my dance class or even a practice session it is so complex and intense that i can't be thinking of anything else so i have to shut out anything the world can be like falling around me but unless i shut it out i can't do my dance so unwinding but maybe like being just with myself in present and just time that i put in myself which so has been a real gift so important because i hear from a lot of mid career professionals who either now have a little more time or they're just trying to get into that self care and trying to see okay what else do i want to do what else do i enjoy I, as a coach i hear from them saying i didn't develop any hobby i didn't develop anything that i kind of also can do to help me through stressful times or difficult times so i think it's uh, something that maybe we also teach our kids at very early on that it's it's not just that one thing which you do which is a profession or which is towards the earning etc but keep two three things which satisfy different parts of you i feel that is not always there at work and in that sense it's really really beautiful and i think i'm lucky that i'm able to even do this and that i didn't give it up that i managed to do it because it's easy to give up no i mean it's easy to say okay i'll do my career and but i don't know maybe my parents kind of push that and i kept doing it so i'm lucky to have been able to do that and running actually really started as a way of unwinding i had never done sport too much in school i was never a sporty person i used to always be doing the cultural bits in school the music and dance and you kind of get very typecast right in school it's at least in conventional schools like when we grew up that you're either a sports person or you're an arty type or you're a intellectual type and so i was in that sense found myself typecast and never did any sport has actually no meaning or relevance but it kind of stays with you when you build your own identity that i'm not this i'm not, not this you know and so and then it was again 2012 that sudhir kind of joined a running group said that listen why don't you join it 
and i'm like you know i've never run and i'm who's going to run like 510k i can't run and he's like no just join it for 3 months and see how you feel and i wasn't doing any sport and i really felt like i needed to kind of find some activity to unwind and so i joined it it was just actually amazing and i've been kind of running ever since pretty and i really intense running right like pretty long intense but running you can modulate there are times where you can really run long distances and you can reduce if you're not up to it and i do feel that long distance running whatever your distance may be it could be 5k 10k half marathon or a full marathon i think running is one of the easiest things that most people can do you don't need equipment you don't need a gym you can run wherever you want to run you can run with shoes barefoot whatever you want to do you know and again running is in some sense a solo activity so i found that actually very very rejuvenating take a run and a lot of runners will tell you you go for a run and you come back so refreshed mentally because you can think through all the stress over one hour of running <laughs> i'm still a walker but for me walking is that Sure. Yeah. For long hours, yeah. long distances, even if I'm going round and round. But and walking or running, it I think very similar. Very similar. True. No, it's been amazing, Jenna. I think wonderful conversation, inspiring conversation. And like you said, I am looking forward to seeing you grow and blossom even further years ahead of you. I mean, you've really worked on so many important. constitutional challenges i mean adultery you spoke about child marital rape section 377 and i just hope the future brings a lot more to you and for you to create deep impact long lasting impact thank you so much subha i think it's amazing thank you first of all but i really think it's an amazing time where we're seeing so many women who are doing what they really believe in like you able to kind of pull up other women and i think that's why it's an exciting time to be doing a lot of this work and a lot of my inspiration comes in seeing all of you so many of our friends from school just branch off on their own and just do amazingly well so i think that has been an inspiration for me too so thanks for calling me my pleasure so wonderful chatting with you thank you for listening till the very end we hope you enjoyed the conversation if you'd like to leave us a note about the episode please do write in at connect@raincraft.in or drop us a voice message at speakpipe.com/raincraft all the details about our guest today and how you can find us on social media are available in the show notes so please do have a read and catch you next time